Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You know what time it is. It's 7.30 Central Time, 8.30 Eastern Time, which means it's time for the NGSC Weekly Flagship Show, powered by iHeartRadio and NGSC Sports at NGSCSports.com. I am your host, Joshua Zimmer, and always joined by my IQ out in Boston, Mr. John Doucette. John, how are you doing this evening? Josh, good to be with you once again. It's always always good to have you. We were just talking about it on the show. Uh, we had a great conversation about Olympic wrestling. Unfortunately, you guys aren't going to be able to partake in that. Maybe it'll be for another place and another day. And then, of course, always joining me, my partner in crime, my brother from another out of Chicago, Illinois, Mr. Montel Hardy. Montel, how are you doing this evening, man? Uh, great, man. It is a beautiful day in Chicago, Illinois. So, uh, you know, I just... Sitting outside right now, backyard, just hanging out, talking sports with you fine people. Oh, my hey, God. You hear I, that? He's so gross. I, I know. I just did. In a backyard. What? What is this? We're not even yeah, here. man. It's, it's somewhere in Chicago. 68 degrees is a heat wave, my friend. <laughs> we're not, yeah, we're not even going to start talking sports yet. This no, really. No, I, sitting, on a, sitting on the porch, enjoying the, the hot weather. I'm inside. I'm sure... Sure what are you John's... in a rocking chair? Uh, no, no, no. I'll save the rocking chair, the sweet tea, and the sunflower seeds for July. But yeah, man, I'm 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 close. Oh my God! He must have a hammock. I bet he's got a hammock in that backyard. <laughs> we we just have one tree, so it would be too awkward. <laughs> so well, we're not we're not going to get into how Montel enjoys the sunny weather in Chicago, all <laughs> you guys need to know is that he is going to be very comfortable doing this show. Uh, swing right into it. Um, obviously, everybody knows about the Aaron Hernandez murder trial, which, of course, him being on trial for the murder, or supposed murder, of Odin, Lo- uh, Odin Lloyd, excuse me, 27 years old, a semi-professional football athlete in the Northeast. Uh, apparently, his owner was on the stand to give his own little testimony. Uh, John, you being out in that area, what was kind of the hoopla or, or the big thing behind that? Well, let's face it. It's never a good thing when an owner has to uh, take a witness stand against uh, a former player and have to uh, to give testimony, which is unfortunately what Robert Kraft had to do. And it lasted for about 30 minutes. Uh, it uh, was an uncomfortable 
moment or two for Kraft. Uh, he he didn't even really want to disclose what he actually did for a living. Uh, He kind of hesitated when he gave uh, his address of uh, his workplace, and uh, he mentioned the New England Revolution before he mentioned the Patriots. Um, It uh, was the kind of awkward thing that I really think that uh, um, if he had his druthers, he would have found a, a different thing to do than what he unfortunately had to do. Yeah, and the one thing that kind of kind of makes me start stirring a little bit, you know, and getting those wheels churning in my head, is that Robert Kraft has been apparently after having that uh, a very busy man uh, the last couple week, uh, weeks. Um, of course, you know, with him being on the trial, uh, you know, for his testimony, but he also was in the league offices to report on the tampering of the, you know, the supposed claims against the New York Jets uh, tampering against them uh, with Darrell Revis. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to keep it back at you before I swing over to Montel. Uh, have you heard anything else on that front with you being so close? I mean, you're you're basically in the Boston area. Look, it, it, it's two people. Look, you're talking about two franchises that that just don't like each other, and it's it's continuing on. We we thought that uh, this had kind of died down, but uh, obviously with uh, the Darrell Revis situation, that it uh, it perked back up again. Uh, the Patriots had suggested that uh, Woody Johnson had uh, made his uh, uh, had made uh, offers to Darrell Revis while he was still a member of the Patriots and then still under contract to them, uh, and so tampering charges were uh, hinted at as far as the Patriots were concerned. But then, uh, you know, once Revis uh, eventually signed, became a free agent and signed with the Jets, um, you know, Woody Johnson started throwing stuff out there as well. Uh, there's been the back and forth going on that uh, continued during the, the league meetings last week that uh, I think is just all nonsense myself, but it just does demonstrate how uh, two franchises just can't really seem to get along. And, and I do think some of it has to do with uh, the success that the Patriots have had and, and the lack of success that the Jets have had. Uh, not only do uh, the Jets have to deal with the Patriots, but they also have to deal with the Giants as well. And uh, it's been difficult for them to uh, be able to um, you know get their – their moment in the back page of, of New York newspapers, and it appears that this is the only way that they can do it. Yeah, and, and Montel, you know, now throwing it over to you, going back to Kraft being on the stand rather than dealing with the tampering charges and the fact that he's been a busy man the last couple of weeks, what do you take away from him being on the stand and, and basically having to testify against, you know, a former player or at least testify, in, you know, in a court of law? Well, uh, I mean, these are things that they have to do, and, and it's a part of the business. Uh, the Patriots, uh, you know, they, they've won, but, you know, there's always uh, – people always say, you know, there's a price to winning, you know, the price of victory, the price of, you know, justice, the price of whatever. So the Patriots have had to uh, deal with winning in their own way. Uh, part of it is the unfortunate part of, you know, investing what they did in Aaron Hernandez and having him uh, flop the way he did, I, I think – uh, the more the more questionable move is, is is bringing him in in the first place. I mean, he's had a very checkered past. Uh, there there were teammates at Florida who didn't. Uh, he, he they just knew this dude was a, a tough customer, if you get what I'm saying. So, um, I, you know, it's questionable bringing him in. Uh, obviously, when he gets there and has to testify, it's not going to be the most fun. But uh, it, it's just a necessary evil, I guess. I have to say is that you got to do this. You got to have your day in court and. And you've got to be clear about everything. So uh, he's under oath now. So he, he has to keep his ducks in a row. 
Look, it may not be the last. It may not be the last Patriot official that has to do this. There, there is possibility that Bill Belichick may also have to testify at some point, and there I'm may sure. be a couple I'm players sure. that may also have to do it. So this is yep. this is probably going to get more uncomfortable before the entire process is all finished with. Yeah, and the thing about it is, you know, if you're an attorney, um, say if you are Aaron Hernandez's attorney, I mean, it depends. You know, it can go both ways, but I don't think uh, when you consider the nature of the case, I mean. You don't need all these testimonies, do you? I mean, his fast speaks for itself. I mean, if you want to bring Kraft in, maybe Belichick in, okay, but they weren't there that night, you know, and they they find out what you do, how you spend your nights, whether you go out or not, but they're not there with you. So, well, Kraft's uh, just, testimony was based on two days mm-hmm. later when he saw Hernandez in the weight room uh, in Foxborough and asked him about the incident and if, in fact, uh, he was uh, – there at the time that it happened, and according to Kraft's testimony, Hernandez looked him straight in the eye and said that he was innocent of uh, uh, of anything involved with that, and uh, uh, claimed that he was at a club at the time that uh, this unfortunate incident took place. So that was the basis of Kraft's testimony yesterday, and uh, that was really what the prosecution wanted to bring out: that uh, necessarily uh, that the times don't jive with uh, everything that has that Hernandez has tried to. Uh, to put out there that uh, the uh, the sequence of events it just doesn't it doesn't add up. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't. You're right. Yeah, and I, and I want to go back to to what Montel. You made a great point. You made a point saying that he is now under oath, uh, so he has to keep his ducks in a row. John, going back to what you had to say about you know the fact that you know he mentioned the revolution before he mentioned the Patriots, and he kind of seemed like. You know, he was a little bit um, on edge in terms of speaking. Do you give that to nerves? Do you give that to he just doesn't want to technically be a part of it? Uh, I just I just think it was an uncomfortable situation for him to have to be in, and I think, yeah, nerves probably did play a role in it. Uh, I do think that, uh, you know, this is not something that an owner of any franchise in any sport wants to have to do, uh, and unfortunately he did, and uh, I think that uh, – Although he kind of, you know, stumbled his way through it in the beginning, he eventually, you know, got out what I think uh, needed to be said from uh, his perspective of the two days later after the uh, uh, the tragedy happened. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna we're definitely gonna keep going back to you, John, to keep an eye on that because it's obviously gonna be continuing uh, to get bigger and bigger in the news as things continue to to, to leak or as they continue, you know, cross examination and prosecution. Uh, in everything that has to deal with the court of law. Shifting over to another Florida-based football player who was a former football star who, who does have some off-field issues but doesn't have uh, necessarily the range of issues that uh, Mr. Hernandez does, was Jameis Winston and the fact that uh, he had the much-anticipated pro day yesterday, uh, had 102 throws, which is the most that we've seen this year, and it's been the most in, in recent history for quarterbacks to throw uh, after a pro day. Um, Montel, I, I want to turn it over to you first because uh, I know you kept a good eye on it. Uh, what were some of your takeaways from Winston's workout? Uh, sure, Josh. You know, I, I looked and I read and I've seen some things. Uh, you know, he came out aggressive, firing, uh, throwing, um, people do feel like he was a little heavier at his pro day than he was at the combine. And 
we've all saw the picture where he was training for the combine and he looks kind of like Homer Simpson, you know, so he's a little chubby, but, uh, you know, this, these are, you know, these are the things you have to deal with. Uh, people forget, you know, Winston might be what, 20, you know, he doesn't really have his grown man type of body yet, you know? So, um, you know, he's going to hold on to a little bit of that baby weight and a lot of that's just going to happen. And I think, uh, as he gets older and, and continues to mature and play, at an NFL level, and when I say mature, I mean, you know, physically. His body has to mature, and it starts to settle in. I think that's when you see what he's going to be physically. But if he was a redshirt senior and he had questions about him being chubby, then that's when maybe he's leaning more towards the heavy set side, okay. But when he's a redshirt sophomore, I think that's when you got to take a deep breath and step back and say he's not going to look this way for the rest of his life. You know, things can change. You know, he can, he can still grow. That's how young he is. <laughs> so uh, people forget that. So from a physical standpoint, I'd let it go. Um, a lot of people were a little sour on his pro day, but from what I've seen and what I read, I, I thought he did pretty good. I think the key was he wanted to go out here and blow everyone away. So no one went out there and was completely wild by him, but he did what he had to do. And it was, uh, I think it was a very good uh, pro day. And uh, once again, I don't know why quarterbacks do it. I mean, if you throw at the combine, just just sit it, just sit on that. You know, in the, at your pro day, maybe, I mean, unless some of your best friends that are wide receivers absolutely beg you to throw to them, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd just opt out of it, <laughs> to be honest. But, uh, no, I don't, I don't think he lost any stock for his pro day. And uh, I think his is already, you know, uh, better than a couple that we've seen, which you don't really need because this, this quarterback class is very bad overall. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the one thing that I, I do take away from, from his uh, pro day was the fact that it seemed like George Whitfield kind of threw him to the dogs early. Uh, they didn't really give him, you know, that normally, you know, if you watch a typical pro day, normally they'll do the, you know, the five-step and the seven-step drops, you know, anywhere between 20 to 25 reps or, you know, throws, you know, get at least their body and their arms loose and then start getting them to do some of the, the pocket mechanic stuff, you know, moving in the pocket, avoiding the, you know, the, the brooms, you know, the scouts coming and trying to swat them with the broom. You know, oh, doing God. <laughs> but it looked like they started them off from the get-go. Uh, you know, first snap, it was, you know, double hesitation, and then he rolls out and, you know, throws across his body. Uh, that was one, the only thing that I took away from it that really made me nervous was the fact that, you know, yeah, he's a he's a tall quarterback. You know, he he's not gonna you know wow you when he rolls out like you know, and he's heavy. You know, he's two hundred and thirty some pounds. He ain't gonna wow you like a you know like Bridgewater rolling out or like even a you know Aaron Rodgers or Drew Brees or some of these other elite quarterbacks who can roll out you know and still keep that frame. He he kind of stumbles upon himself at times. But the biggest thing with it was the fact that with them not doing that, it looked like he got winded a little bit quicker than what you would normally expect uh, a quarterback to do, especially when it's their pro day. I mean, they're running their own script. Uh, balls were a little high. Balls were a little behind. Uh, so it, not a big deal, you know, in terms of the fact that, you know, after Teddy Bridgewater's pro day, I really can't put a lot of weight into, you know, watching a pro day and, and trying to evaluate from there because everybody saw what happened last year. You know, Bridgewater doesn't throw with the gloves has a horrible pro day, and he drops all the way to number 32, and he was probably the best rookie quarterback out of the three that were, you know, that, that were in the first round and even over Derek Carr, who played somewhat last year. So, you know, overall I thought it was, you know, pretty solid. Uh, I, I'm just kind of, like I said, I'm not a big George Whitfield guy, and the fact that, you know, they, it was kind of funny that they had, you know, these tweets and uh, hashtags going Twitter or, uh, you know, going viral on Twitter uh 
you know, George Whitfield's next pro day, uh, whenever he's going to decide to run, you know, the next quarterback that he, he tries to work with, uh, what his next pro day will be. And there, there are some pretty good ones out there. Uh, John, what do you think, if you had a chance to see it or read it or anything like that, what did you take away from Jameis Winston's pro day? I just think that Jameis Winston only has one team that he has to impress, and that's really Tampa Bay. I think that's the only team right now that really is on his radar. And, and the question is, is, is Winston on Tampa Bay's radar? I think as far as everybody else is, is concerned, they're pretty much sure that Winston's probably not going to be there when it's their turn to draft. And I do think that uh, based on that, uh, you know, whatever any of these scouts wanted to see, I think they already know what he can do and what he can't do. I think they, they understand uh, his, uh, his pocket presence. I think he, they understand his, his presence on the field. I think that's pretty much been demonstrated by him. It's just a question of what Tampa Bay wants to do. I mean, they're the ones that, that hold that pick, and it's, it's just their time to make a decision, and the clock is ticking, and, and by April 30th, we'll finally know if, in fact, Jameis Winston has convinced them not only through his football skills but also through his verbal skills of the interview process that he had with them, whether or not he's the guy. Yeah, and, and now that makes me, you know, that I'm going to turn it back to you, Montel. If you are the GM or you are in that draft room, you know, that war room, are you making a case to take Winston with the number one pick? Uh, if you're Tampa Bay, and geez, this is tough because I, I know it's rough. I know it's not easy picking from this class of quarterbacks, and um, I know that in their all in their own special way, these guys are all bad in some area, right? Be it on the field, be it off the field, be it potential, be it size. Um, if I'm Tampa Bay, I take them, and I think you have to. They're in win now mode. Whether they want to, you know, face it or not, they are. I think the Panthers are. To me, the Panthers and, and the Saints will, you know, it's, it's their division to play around with. But um, everyone is talking quietly about what Atlanta can do. So essentially, if the Buccaneers can't compete with this this division, which is quickly, quickly getting younger, uh, then they will find themselves uh, dwelling at the bottom for the next two to three years. So uh, now it's kind of that time to take that foothold in your division and, t- and shake things up, you know, coming off of one of the worst division form- performances in NFL history. So uh, you need a guy who you don't really need to wait on. You need a guy who can come in right away, feed Mike Evans, uh, feed Benton Jackson, feed Austin Stafarian Jenkins, uh, roll, pick, play action, you know, get get the running game going a little bit with your back. So I think you got to take James from day one. Hey, you know, that's kind of the big thing with me is that in terms of the football, you know, in terms of football readiness, uh, I mean, people are going to make an argument for Marcus Mariota as they should. Coming from a pro-style offense, I mean, it's been said that, you know, playing under Florida State in Jimbo Fisher, you're playing under a defense that – or an offense, excuse me, that's one-third more advanced than some of the NFL teams in terms of the verbiage that you're going to be using. Uh, so he's going to be able to have a little bit of a transition there in terms of, you know, learning the playbook, learning, you know, different signs, how to call protections. I mean, he called his own protections at, you know, at Florida State. The one thing that I would be nervous about – you know, of course, this is off the field issues. Has he proven enough to these teams in the meetings at the combine, in his private workout meetings, at the pro day meetings? Has he proven enough that he is starting to become a more mature man? Now that he is 21 years old, 
You know, he, he is considered an adult now. You know, everybody used to consider, you know, 18 being an adult, but now it's 21 uh, with these athletes. 21 years old, you're considered an adult. Has he made the right steps to prove to Tampa Bay that when there's no football, because in, in terms of football, like I said, there's no question. Uh, it's not like a case with Johnny Manziel where you worry about him. Is he going to be the first one in and the last one out? Everybody knows that with Jameis, football is all. Uh, it's just the fact that when he's outside of football, he does some stupid things uh, and, and even you know gets, him, gets himself into trouble. So is that the thing with him? Do we know that he can keep us on the right track? Well, uh, the truth is, Josh, you, you never know. Uh, you don't know what any of these guys, you know, that's just the truth. I think at the end of the day, you got to look at it this way. Um, is he someone who uh, we believe? And, and and when we take this risk, you know, what are we risking it all for? Uh, I think one thing that this quarterback uh, drought that we've seen over the last year, a uh, year to two years, is that these teams are saying, hey, if we're going to draft a quarterback who might not be so great, why not? why not draft a guy who played at a local university, you know? Like, maybe that'll go over better with our fans, <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, there's that. And, and and as far as what Jameis is, you know, I listen to him. I believe him. He's an intelligent guy. I knows his football. And he, I feel like, uh, you know, he can have, uh, you know, civil debates and discussions about things as an adult off the field. It's just that uh, is, is the interest there to keep that on all the time? Is the interest there to do whatever goofy things he wants to do, you know, um, at home, quietly, and in a legal manner, you know. So um, without dipping too far in his personal life, you just have to assume that based on what he said at this point, that he's either getting it and growing as a young man, maybe very slowly but still growing, or he's, you know, a, a, a compulsive liar, you know. <laughs> and I guess that's the route you, you got to choose from, and it's it's not easy trying to tell the difference between the two. You can't choose his friends. You can't choose his associates. So you're just going to have to hope that his friends and his associates will um, be the kind of people that won't put him in difficult situations that will force the Tampa Bay Buccaneers down the road to have to make a financial decision or a roster decision that's really going to uh, to affect this team even longer than what they're going through right now. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, like you guys made both great points. Uh, it still seems undoubtedly he's going to be the number one guy. I think uh, you know. I think me and Montel are, are both kind of still calling that right now. Uh, but not to end with pro days. Uh, we got one more that I, I actually want to bring up. It, this one will surprise you a little bit, uh, Montel. I don't know if you had a chance to see, or for anybody that matter, but the University of Miami conducted their their pro day today. And I know there's a cat uh, by the name of Philip Dorsett that you really like, Montel. Uh, and apparently all of these receivers from Florida, or at least from Florida universities, can really fly, uh, as this kid posted, a, you know, four two five forty. The fact that, you know, when you watch his tape, you know he runs great routes. Uh, yeah, a little bit of a height issue, but the fact that he, you know, kind of showed up at the Senior Bowl and some of these other places – uh, and the fact that even the scouts, you know, after reading some of the scouts really loved his gauntlet and, and his position work at his pro day, is Dorsett a guy who you think now has kind of helped along with, you know, Brichard Perryman with their pro days jump into first-round consideration, maybe that late first or mid-first? 
Uh, well, Josh, you know me. You've seen my board. Now, I wavered in my mock, but my board has Philip Dorsett there as, as a guy who can potentially go in the first round. I think I've got him somewhere in the top 25 to 30. So uh, he's just that kind of player to me. I like Nelson Aguilar too, but I think Dorsett's got a little bit more physical upside in terms of his speed and agility, uh, maybe better. Well, but I think they both have good hands. And so with Dorsett, uh, you know, first off, you know, they, there's just a special type of athlete in Florida, and recruiters will tell you that, coaches will tell you that. Uh, you know, speed is speed kills. Speed is very common. And the funny thing is uh, Dorsett did the exact same thing last year. You know, he ran and, and going into fall of uh, 2014, people were touting the fact that, you know, it's unofficial, but he ran the 40 that's in the four twos. And so uh, at the combine, people thought they'd see it. It was a four three three. You know, if you're disappointing people with a four three three forty, then <laughs> you're a flyer. You know, simple as that. You know, you're just that fast. So, uh, I like Dorsett a lot. I think he's going to be a fine receiver. He's got good hands, runs a good route. I mean, you covered him pretty well. Uh, I don't think in all seriousness that the pro day does anything. I mean, if you really know this guy, you know how fast he is. He, the 4 through 3 of the combine, uh, he ran in the 4-2s last year, 4-2s in a pro day this year. So um, if you really know him, you should be shot by what he did. So if you don't like him, it's, it's definitely got to be for another reason because he's, he's got blazing speed. It's just another name to throw into a hat at a deep position for this draft. And the wide receiver position is going to be deep in this draft. And, and Philip Dorsett just adds his name to a, to a growing list that uh, if there are NFL teams looking for wide receivers, and I'm sure plenty of them are, there are going to be plenty of options available throughout the draft. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I think – I think he wouldn't be a bad fit in New England, John, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, with you he guys could be practice- a pretty good fit anywhere. It's just a question of the offense, and it's just a question of uh, you know, what people perceive him as, as a slot guy, as somebody who can stretch defenses, stretch, stretch secondaries. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's just going to depend on, on what, you, what you're drafting him to do. Yeah, and that's yeah, the same. yeah. agreed. Yeah. And I think he's a guy who, uh, you know, had he be in New England – he would more likely take over the Edelman, you know, type of role. And Edelman would be kind of pushed out wide, you know, to be that wide guy instead of, you know, doing a lot of work from the slot. And that kind of allow them to get rid of uh, Danny Amendola since he can't seem to stay healthy. But I want to well, – look, look, Danny Amendola's late season run is going to save him. So I think that the, the idea of him not being a part of that football team next year is uh, is not something that's going to take place. He will be there and he'll – They'll continue to try and find ways for him to contribute to this team, much like they did this past year. So uh, the idea that uh, Amendola is not going to be a part of that football team next year is uh, it's not going to happen. Keeping it with New England real okay. quick, John. Okay. Yeah. Keeping it with New England, John, as we're getting ready to, to round out, you know, the first, uh, you know, first half hour of our show, I did see that they signed, uh, I believe it was Rolando McLean to a, to a one-year deal uh, this year. Is that anything that's starting to... Well, that's bump? based on the Dante Hightower situation and the shoulder surgery that he went through and, and the, the possibility that he could miss at least the first half of the upcoming season. And so the Patriots decided that that spot needed to be filled and Rolando McLean was a guy who was available. They brought him in, they worked him out. Uh, when they worked him out, they, he didn't leave with a contract, but apparently the Patriots have uh, have reconsidered and have signed him to a one-year deal. They Look, I mean, look at this defense. When you consider the, the group that showed up to play Seattle for the Super Bowl and you now see the group that has been left behind uh, 
through free agency, injuries, and so forth, it's not the same group in any way, stretch, or form. And with Dante Hightower not being available to this team for a significant period of time, they needed to do something, and they did. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, Montel, I agree with you completely. Yeah. Montel, what's your take on that? Uh, you know, how do you how do you think he's going to fit into that defense? Uh, well, I think he'll blend in well. I mean, one thing you see about Belichick is he's really into his DBs. He doesn't ask a whole lot from his linebackers, which makes sense because, right, he doesn't spend a lot of money there. He's never – I mean, he – you know, you can make a case for Gerard Mayo, but for the most part he's never really spent the highest of high picks, never really pursued his linebackers. His goal is to lock you down with his DBs and frustrate you with his pressure with his front four and then kind of let his linebackers kind of, you know – uh, roam the field and and maybe you know find different things that they can do well and then just have them just do that one thing. So uh, Belichick's a fantastic defensive mind, but I you know well, we know we know about the Super Bowls, right? So uh, I think the key here is uh, linebackers good, but they really got to replace some DBs, man. You know they let go of you know they didn't want to well they couldn't resign Revis, uh, didn't want to reach out there and, and get Browner, so they they can't be grasping at straws here. The corners are pretty much the strength of that system. And you've seen, you know, whenever they had just very good to maybe great, well, not very good, they need to be great to a, or better, great to excellent uh, corner play. That's when you see that Super Bowl run, you know, when they're just pretty good at corner, when they're just okay, you know, that's that just means a playoff loss, which I guess is all right. But, <laughs> you know, uh, the defense is going to be a little bit less dominant either way. Let's face it, it's not going to be the same group that was out there in February. There's no question about that. But there's still plenty of time uh, to tweak it and put it together so that by the time training camp arrives, everybody has a pretty good idea of what this defense may look like and what it can or cannot be or cannot do. Exactly, exactly. And as we keep talking about linebackers, uh, after we take this quick NGSC Sports update, we'll be joined by an NFL hopeful who it plays linebacker. Montel, take it away, brother. Of course, I'm Montel Hardy, and this is an NGSE Sports News, Greg. Just a reminder, you can listen to us at NGSEsports.com. Just go on the Red Talk Shoe Box and listen to us live. In the news now, representatives from Texas are in deep discussions with VCUs, Shaka Smart about becoming the Longhorns' next head coach. And Texas officials will be surprised if he doesn't accept an offer, a source told CBS Sports on Wednesday afternoon. Whether Shaka Smarts will accept is uh, unclear at this moment. Pete guard Shabazz Napier underwent surgery Wednesday to repair a sports hernia and will miss the remainder of the regular season, the team announced. Napier has missed the last three games in what is believed to be a hip injury in 51 games during his rookie season. Napier averaged just five points and two and a half assists. Everyone, be sure to check out NGSE's hottest stories. One of them is who the New York Jets should select in NFL draft. That's by our own Twan Staley. Also, you can check out Steve Kerr splashing Golden State. That's by G. Stelio. And that's, of course, regarding the Steve Kerr run over in Golden State and just, you know, their rise to power in the Western Conference. Finally, you can check out NBA How Nico Miritich Became Suave. <laughs> I kind of like the title. Nico Suave, uh, I like that. Anyways, that's by NGSC's newest sports writer, Jake Stanley. It's a good buddy of mine. I suggest everyone check that out. It's a great story. Jake will be joining us full-time as a feature columnist for our basketball, professional basketball page. 
Everyone, you can check out these stories and many, many more on our homepage at NGSCSports.com. Once again, you're listening to NGSC Weekly's, NGSC's weekly flagship show on NGSC Sports Radio, available on iHeart, Spreaker, and iTunes. I'm Monta Hardy. Back to you, Josh. Hey, thank you, Montel. Uh, by the way, uh, go out there and read that Jets article by Twan. Uh, it's awesome. Speaking of a guy who the Jets could take maybe in the later uh-huh. rounds if they need help in their front seven, which they do, uh, particularly in the middle, is former Montana State linebacker Alex Singleton. Alex, how are you doing this evening? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you, of course. Of course, uh, my two co-hosts, uh, my IQ out in Boston, Mr. John Doucette, and then, of course, Mr. Montel Hardy. Uh, nice, of, nice of you to join us, Alex. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, buddy. Yeah, thanks. So have been Alex, ready for uh, this one for a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. And what better, what not been a better time than now? Uh, of oh, course, yeah. you're back in California training now. Uh, basically, how are things going on your end of the front? I know we've, uh, you know, I've kept these guys and everybody else who listens updated on, on your situation. And, uh, in fact, you had an awesome pro day, and now you're not starting to really fly under the radar anymore like you were during the season. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so right now I'm just back home training, enjoying this 80-degree weather every day. And, uh, you know, just sitting back and, you know, not letting the pressure try not to build up too much on me right now because it's still got a full month. But, you know, just, you know, getting those workouts in here at Proactive. And then, I mean, besides that, just – sitting back and trying to find stuff to fill my time. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, you know, the, the one thing, uh, you know, of course, that uh, you know, we could always talk about is, is your time at, at Montana State. Uh, obviously, you, one of the things that you can say is that, you know, you played on one of the pure, premier uh, teams in the Big Sky Conference, of course, with, you know, the, the Montana Grizzlies and you know, Eastern Washington. Uh, and you've played against some, some pretty damn good athletes, of course, Vernon Adams, uh, which we might as well ask a player who played against him, what do you think Vernon could do if he gets the starting job at Oregon? I mean, sky's the limit. I mean, the, I mean, the quarterback before him is obviously Marcus Mariota, who is seen as one of the top two prospects in this year's draft. So, I mean, I mean literally, sky's the limit. He'd go from a FCS, you know, hopeful, hopeful sixth or seventh round draft pick to – I mean, he could go on and win the Heisman this year for, you know, all anyone wants to think, you know. And, I mean, sky's the limit for him for getting the opportunity that he's gotten with Oregon. Yeah. And I'm going to throw it to my to my two goals now because, of course, me and you converse all the time. But I'm going to throw it to these guys and let them pick your brains. Uh, John, I'll go ahead and toss it to you first. Take it away. I, the thing, Alex, that I was impressed at looking at your at your bio was uh, your ability to play games. You played all twelve games in twenty fourteen. You you pretty much did the same thing in twenty thirteen. How have you been able to stay on the field and avoid serious injuries? I mean, I just all. I mean, it's all about recovery for me. Um, I was always in the ice baths, and uh, our strength coach up in Montana State was always about you know stretching, flexibility, and then just you know knowing how to keep your body safe and, you know, staying inside your cylinder, always, you know, always being comfortable. Don't, don't, you know, don't let your extremities get loose and get caught into situations that you shouldn't be in. And, uh, I mean, that alone has kept me pretty good. And then also luck. I mean, I think being able to play 25 straight games 
for anybody and some people more. It's just, I mean, a lot of it just comes down to being never in the wrong place at the wrong time. You also increased your total tackle numbers from 110 in 2013 to 127 in 2014. What helped you to make that increase possible? Um, I think just, you know, maturing and becoming an older player on the defense, going from, you know, a first-year starter to a second-year starter, and uh, just, you know, learning how to, you know, go through a play and understand what all 11 guys are doing on the field instead of just myself. I knew as a, as a junior, it was a lot of times I only knew in certain formations or certain defensive calls, I only knew what I was doing. But as a senior, I could tell you what all 11 guys on the field were always doing, and then I could, I could plug myself into spots that would better help my performances. I think the thing, the number I think that NFL scouts probably look at, the one that would really jump off the page, is your tackles for loss. 14, point, uh, 14 in 2014, and the 2013 it was 16.5. Those are some pretty significant numbers that I think NFL scouts would be very much interested in. What's the key to be, making, to be able to make plays in the, in the opponent's backfields? I mean, for, I mean, start every week, I mean, with a lot of film review. You've got you to gotta know, you know, you know your opponent better than they know themselves. And uh, just knowing what a tendency or, you know, what, a, what scheme they're going to run and just knowing what plays are going to come at you, you can take those faster first and second steps. And if my first and second step are as fast as your first step, I'm already on the line of scrimmage, and then that just gives me – then I'm already in your backfield by the time I'm at the line of scrimmage. So, I mean, that's definitely where I learned that from, is from film review and just knowing your opponent better than they know themselves. It's been a month since your pro day. Being able to look back on it, being able to reflect on how that day went, did you show everybody that was there in attendance that day what you wanted to show them? Yes, uh, I think 100%. Because um, I was really nervous and really worked up going into that day and not really knowing how I was going to perform or, you know, if it was going to be like a game where I was going to perform, you know, better than I ever expected or if it was going to be one of those weird situations where I went out and didn't perform as well just because of certain pressures or whatever. But then, you know, when I went out, I had the ability. It, kind of, it was kind of like that fourth quarter in a game where, you, you know, you either step up or you, you know, fall down. And uh, I think I stepped up and showed a lot of things that I even surprised myself. And based on that performance, do you now have a better idea of where your potential slot in the draft might be? Uh, you know, hopefully hopefully now I do have a slot in the draft, to be honest. Uh, I think it went from no slot to maybe to maybe preferred free agent to a free agency. But hopefully now, as I look at it, hopefully, you know, one of those sleeper picks in the fifth, sixth, or seventh round or even a preferred free agency spot. Do you think the conference that you played in kind of held you back in terms of your ability to be a drafted player in the in the NFL draft? Um, I believe it does. I believe FCS just gets overlooked in general by there is level different level of competition that every week in and week out you do see. But I also think that there is, you know, players that um, are hard to find that do have the same abilities or even better and the FCS, but it's not typically all 11 guys on the field at every time. As you get closer to the draft, how much, how much conversation are you having with people that have inside NFL knowledge about your situation and where you may end up and, and quite frankly, what part of, of the draft process that you may end up hearing your name? 
Um, honestly, the only person that I talk to with any NFL insight like that is Josh. And, uh, you know, because he's one of well, my good buddies. Right. You're in trouble now, right <laughs> off the bat. Now, now it's over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I, uh, you know, I just try not to, I try not to get into all that because, you know, no matter what, no matter if your name is the first name called or you're the last free agent or the last, you know, free agent signed, I mean, it doesn't matter because once you get on the field or once you're one of the, however many guys they invite to camp or whatever, if you're, at the end of the day, if you're one of the 53 guys that make the team in the end of August, I mean, you're on the team no matter which number you are, you're number one or number 53. So, I mean, it's just all a battle from every step of the way. So do you plan to actually watch the draft, or or are you going to be somebody that kind of comes in and out just to see what's going on? Oh, man. Um, You know, I think I'm going to be in and out, but I definitely – I'll have an eye on it. I I don't think I'll just sit there by myself in a room with some friends and watch it, but I think I'll – you know, I'll try to be doing something. I might go, you know, go to the high school and get a workout in or, you know, just something to keep my mind off of just sitting there watching each number go, each, you know – 10, 15 minutes between each pick and just not let it just dwell on my day, kind of having more of an exciting day, you know, kind of do stuff. But because if it doesn't happen, I'm I'm confident in what I've shown that I will get a call either during the draft or after. So it's not that just being drafted isn't everything to me. It's just getting the opportunity to play. Alex, I wish you well. Montel, what have you got for him? Uh, absolutely, and uh, thanks, John, and, and thank you to you, uh, Alex, for uh, joining us today. I really appreciate having you on the show. Oh, yeah, um, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Um, you know, I was listening to Jethro Tull, you know, a little bungle in the jungle. <laughs> that's a pretty oh, that's good song, nice. bro. That's nice of you. <laughs> right? You know, so, yeah, I was, I was checking out the song. Anyways, uh, you know, uh, John touched on your pro day. I want to go a little bit deeper into the pro day because it seems like you had a heck of a pro day. So um, I do, uh, or at least I was told by Josh, you know, you, you caught the attention of a few scouts and maybe you were asked to do some different things. What, what did they have you doing out there? Um, out in uh, California, you mean? Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, you know, I just I came home. Because I knew of a place, and my agent knew this place of it's called Proactive Sports Performance in Westlake Village, which is in the I mean it's in Thousand Oaks. So uh, and that's where the Clay Matthews, Aaron Rodgers, uh, are the two big name guys that work out there every off season. So the, and there's only about 20 vets, and then there was about nine of us combine guys. So it's a small, nice facility. But I mean, what I saw from January till now is just how much people work and how much people push you. And I think those, just those elements of, you know, new, new workout styles and new conditioning that pushed my body to a whole nother limit was part of what, I mean, turned me into what I envisioned myself being and it turned me into that. Cool. Cool. And, uh, you know, as we, um, get, you know, uh, closer to draft day, uh, when we look at, you know, defensive schemes, you know, 3-4, three, 4-3, four, four, three, uh, tell me a little bit more of how you were used in college and, and, you know, where do you see yourself as a pro? I mean, what what's, uh, what's the best system to get the most out of you? Oh, man. Well, in college we played a 4-3 system, and I was our will backer, but I also played a lot of Mike too, so I was bouncing back and forth from the inside to the outside. So it was kind of – which is kind of nice and really beneficial. And I also rushed the edge a lot. So I think – 
when it comes down to it for an NFL team, I think if I, you know, I got picked up late by a 3-4 team, then I think the middle or outside would be a perfect spot for me. And same thing with a 4-3. I think I could be a Mike in a smaller linebacker box, but also play outside. And I think that's what I bring definitely most to any team, that I could play for all 32 defenses. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, what, what was that 40 time again? What did you say? Sorry, I didn't. I'm sorry, what was your official 40 time or your unofficial from the pro day? Uh, four six two. Yeah, yeah, you can you can definitely you can definitely get there as a linebacker if that's the case. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would I'll probably have you maybe will pursue it. I mean, and then you know how deep this edge rusher class is. I might throw you in that mix. Um, you know, depending on how the board falls. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely say teams are going to look at you. Um, here's a here's a stat for you. Um, over or exactly or, okay, linebackers that have run the forty in four seven or better have a 70% chance of being drafted. <laughs> so wow. the odds are already in your favor, my man. Um, let's go uh, a couple more questions here. Uh, first off, tell me about your experience at Montana. What led you there? And, and, and just, uh, you know, like where did you start from and where did you go now? You know, did you switch positions? Did anything change? So actually in high school when I was a sophomore, I was playing quarterback and I broke my elbow. So I had to – make a conscious decision, obviously, that I wasn't going to be playing quarterback anymore for my high school team. So I switched to linebacker when I was on JV or junior varsity. And uh, so from that moment on, I played linebacker. And so my junior year, I was a little small. I was about 5'10", 5'11", about 165, 170. And so, you know, I just kind of played. I, You know, in the back of my mind, I knew what I always wanted to do and was play college football. And so, you know, that's a lot I always work to do, but I knew I needed to get taller and stronger and faster. And so then my senior year came around, and at the beginning of the year I was 6'2", 210. So I kind of got the growth spurt that I wanted and then uh, the size also. And then I had a pretty good senior year, I would say. I was first team all CIF and captain of my team and everything. So I was really excited about all that. And then, you know, college just started rolling around because one of my best friends – uh, Richard Mullaney, who plays up at Oregon State right now, actually, he had a lot of attention as a, I think he was a three or four star recruit coming out of high school. So we had all the schools coming in and examining him and, you know, offering him and all this stuff. So I would get the exposure. And so, you know, no one ever, would, no one would ever pull the trigger and I'd always meet with them, with schools, with him. So it was kind of me, him, our head coach and schools would come in and, you know, they'd always offer him, but I would just talk to them. And then one day Montana State came, and I still had no offers yet at this point. And uh, it was Coach Kane Ione, who's now the defensive coordinator, but at the time was only the linebackers coach. And so uh, he came in and met with me and told me about two minutes after talking to me that he wanted to offer me a full-ride scholarship and that he would just have to go back, obviously, to discuss it with the head coach, but that I would be getting a scholarship from them. And I think about 10 hours later he called me and he's like, hey, yep, we're offering you a full ride, and, <laughs> which was really cool because it was kind of like I had always been sitting there waiting and no one was calling and no one – and so I was kind of, you know, just getting really down or looking at junior colleges and stuff mm-hmm. like what to do because I wanted to keep playing. And, uh, you know, from that moment, I mean, it was it was the only offer I ever got. So, you know, I was moving mm-hmm. to Montana. 
Man, and then that's great. I mean, talk about you know where you where you're at then, where you're at now. I mean, that's that's just fantastic. Uh, before I you know move back to Josh, I just wanted to ask about um, you know your film study. Tell me a little bit about your approach in the film room and and, and how you carry that with you on well Saturdays and hopefully on Sundays. Oh yeah, you know I just always start by looking at looking at the technique of the offensive line and what you know the quarterback and running back's positions are. I just want to see, you know, because sometimes some offensive linemen, not, I'm sure not in the NFL, but in college, you know, some schemes, some guys like to put their hands down, some guys don't on pass and run plays, which give away almost everything. Will give away your first two steps, either forward or backwards. So that is always the first thing I look at. And then I go through and find tendencies about where you're running back to linemen, especially a lot of, obviously, a lot of college football now is in shotguns. So when you have your running back split, one yard to the side and one yard back and you're getting a lot of zone out of that guy, then you know when zone's coming. But if he's, you know, three yards to the left or the right of the quarterback, then you know a lot of, you know, split zone and, you know, the other plays are coming. And so, you know, there's a lot of base on, you know, alignments and uh, just kind of tendencies that offense would have, you know, kind of when your tight end's on the ball, you have a 75% chance of running it compared to when you have three split and your Y on the ball and the number two, you know, you are 100% pass. And it was just kind of, you know, tendencies to where you could talk them up on the field, but it didn't override how you played. Okay, okay. Um, Josh, I'm, I'm going to kick it your way. All right, thank you, Montella. And, Alex, me being a Montana guy, uh, I've known some of the guys that you've played with. Uh, you know, Brad Daly, you know, uh, Buchanan Award winner, Caleb Trivice. You know, Buchanan Award winner, uh, Dane Fletcher, Buchanan Award finalist, and then, of course, uh, you know, played for John, played for your New England Patriots for a couple of years, and then went down to, uh, went down and played in Tampa. What did you learn from, from playing around some guys like that? Because, um, you know, obviously uh, those were all great players in their own right. I mean, they, you know, won awards, and some of them went on to the NFL and you know, have made somewhat of a substantial career out of it. What were some of the things that when you were coming into the program, uh, they kind of took you on your wing and taught you what to do? I mean, just hard work. I mean, those, I mean, every guy you named are the guys that I, if you were to ask me who worked the hardest when I was always at Montana State, it would be those guys. It's the guys that are putting in the extra time and they're always focusing more on football than, you know, outside things, obviously putting a lot of time into school still, but you know, putting in so much of that extra time in football and taking it, I mean, it was their job in college. It wasn't just going to be their job in the future, like for Dane, but for like Brad and Caleb, it was, it was their job. And they would, they would go to work every day. And it was like, I mean, you're packing your hard hat and your lunch pan and you're going to work. You're not just sitting back and just, oh, I'm better than everybody. So I don't need to work. They were the ones that were out working everybody else in practice and fall camp and spring ball. And then when it came to games, it was easy for them. And that's where I think it really translated, and that's what I learned, was to develop. I mean, you're not just trying to develop on Saturdays. You, I mean, you really win games on Tuesday. And that's, those were the guys that won games during the week. They didn't win them just on Saturdays. They won them during the week. And, I mean, that's what made them all great players. Yeah. And then uh, over your career, I mean, like, you know, like I said, me being a Montana guy, uh, you know, I've had a chance to keep an eye on, you know, the Cats uh, and the Grizz and actually came into your backyard uh, back in 2012 and even had a chance to line up against you guys. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
so you've had you've had some great you know you yourself have had some great games and some great performances of course you know the game against Portland State where you got you know root sports player of the week um what are some of the the performances that you or maybe you as a defense or a team uh, really stick out to you oh man that's a tough question. I, would, I mean, definitely this year that Portland State game for myself stood out more than anything because I think it was a week that I put in extra preparation and extra extra drive to you know push when I can when I can see opportunities where I can get extra tackles and stuff. You know, you you push that little extra button. But then it was kind of like building up to that. We had a bunch of very good defensive performances against uh, Weber State the week before, and even Cal Poly in a loss against in a really difficult offensive scheme that they run. You know, they run the triple option. But we still, even with a loss, the defense came out, and we still had – we were growing. We had, a, we had a really growing defense this year, and that's what I think – you know, there isn't any specific points. I mean, there's plays that you can point out throughout the year, but I think we were just – always getting better. I know, obviously, statistically, it doesn't show that, that we were always developing or getting better, but I think as a defensive unit, we were, and we were learning, and, you know, off of that, I think we were just becoming better. Yeah, I know this one might might kind of, you know, uh, rip open an old wound, but I had a chance to go down and uh, watch you against South Dakota State this year. Um, out of any offensive player you've played, is Zach Zinner probably the best running back you faced? Yes, he. Yeah, he was. He's definitely up there. I think the only other guy is uh, Forte out of Eastern Washington that can compete at the same level or had the same game time plays and the same big time moments. But I mean, Zach Zinner, I've never seen someone so physically and like mentally dominant on a field. I mean, you you played well. Uh, you 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 yourself played well. I believe you were double digits that game uh, in the close playoff loss. But uh, folks, if you didn't get a chance to see the stat line, uh, I believe Zinner had 25 carries for 256 yards and four touchdowns in a snowy game. I might add, which was actually fun to uh, to watch. Not fun to stand in, but it was it was fun to watch. Uh, better moment for you, Alex, beating the Grizz. Or that Portland State game. Oh, beating the Grizz day in and day out. That's I mean that's an everyday that's an everyday achievement when you can do that. Yeah, <laughs> I knew that one was getting ready to come. That's why I had to ask it. Uh, one <laughs> last thing before we let you go. Uh, I do know that your brother signed at uh, Black Hill State, a Division two school in the RMAC conference, to play football. Uh, is he playing linebacker as well? And uh, if I remember right from talking to you at your pro day, um, he's actually up there at spring camp right now? Yeah, he is at spring camp, and he is up there playing linebacker. I think as of right now, since last time I talked to him, he is at Sam right now because he, I guess he got fast or something, trying to be like his brother. But, you know, I, t- I told him to get back <laughs> fat as fast as he can. But, you know, if he wants to cover those slot receivers, then uh, – more power to him, I guess. <laughs> and of course, man. Well, hey, I wish we could, uh, you know, wish we could keep you on. Uh, you know me; we could talk football for hours. Uh, Alex, I want to say thank you very much for taking time out of your evening and talking to us a little bit about your journey. And of course, uh, you know that we're all going to be pulling for you. 
And uh, like I've told you before, I know you're going to get a phone call. It's just a matter of when and where. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And, uh, hey, congrats on your big news today. Hey, thank you very, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So, oh, yeah. We'll, uh, but, yeah, man, like I said, we'll definitely be keeping in touch with you, and we'll have you on the show again. Uh, hopefully this time you'll be able to tell us uh, where your home will be for the next 10 to 15 years. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Thank you guys for having me. No problem, man, and I hope you like blue and orange. The Bears would love to have a guy like you, man. (laughs) (laughs) I would not mind any color at this point, let me tell you. (laughs) All right, Alex, thank you very much, man. Have yourself a good night and tell your parents hello. You You guys too. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you. All right, folks, and there it is. Uh, NFL hopeful, former Montana State linebacker, Alex Singleton, giving us a little insight on his draft journey and the yeah. preparation that he takes to make himself a better player. I, I told you what, he's kind of a well-spoken dude, ain't he? No, he, he's brilliant, Josh, and you know, I just want to thank you for bringing him on the show. It was great to get a chance to talk to him and just do, you know, just learn a little bit about you know some of the things he did to get himself to this point. Um, I know it's just it's got to be nerve-wracking for these guys, Josh, you know, getting into April and, and counting the days down like this. I, I will say this. Uh, John, he was being modest when he was telling you that he was nervous. Um, I don't think uh, out, of the, out of the two guys that we've been, you know, profiling this year that I've had a chance to see before the pro day, uh, the other one being defensive end Zach Wagaman uh, out of the University of Montana, uh, this uh, he was fidgety. Uh, he he was he was raring to go, but he was also nervous. And uh, like I said, he was very modest because he he blew the doors wide open on the thing. Um, it was a very you know as we talked about it previously, it was a, it was a pretty darn impressive uh, performance. Well, let's face it. I mean, there was an opportunity that was in front of him and one that he had to take advantage of. He understood. It sounded like what that pro day was really going to mean for him, and it, and it appears that he took full advantage of it. Now it's just a question of whether the scouts evaluated that performance the way he hopes they did. You know what? I hope they do too. Uh, you know, we uh, like I, you know as I mentioned before, you know we talked to the chief scout about it, and you know it seemed like they they really enjoyed him and and think that he, you know, like uh, like Montel said, you know he's a guy that could be a versatile player. You could plug him in in the middle on a four three, or you could plug him in on the outside, or you can have him play in the middle on a three four. Or, uh, you know, he's he's a guy that. You know, they could plug him in virtually anywhere. So it was great to, great to get a chance to talk to him uh, and, of course, continue to hear his journey. And, and like I said, we are definitely going to have him back when we find out what his new home is going to be uh, so we can talk to him and kind of pick his brain about that and, and get him all jacked up for, for mini camp and, and rookie camp and uh, all the great things like that. But we are getting ready to wind down on the first hour of our show. Again, you are listening to NGSC Sports weekly show on iHeartRadio at NGSCSports.com. Of course, as Montel said, you can always go and, and click on the little box and you'll be able to listen to us live straight from the site. Uh, make sure you go out there and read some of the new articles. I know me and Montel dropped our mock drafts on Monday. We've been getting a lot of heat and a lot of flack and, and a lot of interesting conversations about that, uh, even between ourselves on some of the picks that we went. So go out there and check out all the all the fresh content that we have out there. And we will be right after this break. You're going to like this one, John. Oh, I hope so. I hope so, too.
Joshua Zimmer, joined by Montel Hardy and John Doucette. John, I, I told you you were going to like it. Uh, I don't know if you did. I don't care. I was craving more cowbell. That's why we played it. Oh, that, no, that was fine. You, you, you seem to be uh, <laughs> certainly picking uh, uh, the uh, a consistent error with uh, your selections for this particular portion of the program. Hey, well, you know, we, we have to. We like I like we always say, me and Montel are the young bucks. We we got to keep you guys happy. Uh, we can listen to anything, uh, and that's a classic. So we have to play it. That's that true. Way. It is. You are correct. It is. We have so we have to do that. But we're gonna go in a different direction now, with it being the April Fool's Day. I decided that instead of doing uh for real. We'll do something a little bit more themed to one of my favorite holidays of the year. Uh, of course, to any teachers out there who had April Fool's pranks pulled on them today, I apologize. I did not give anybody any sort of ideas or anything for that matter. Uh, just a fair warning. Um, but no, with this one, what is your biggest joke in sports? Uh, Montel, I'm going to throw it at you first. What is your April Fool's prank or joke conversation or news in the NFL or sports in general? Uh, well, as of right now, it's really anything the Cleveland Browns try to do. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, Ray Farmer, I mean, what are you, what are you doing? You know, texting these guys, coaches on the sidelines, allow North Turner to walk out the door, allow Kyle Shanahan to walk out the door. And now next year, when we talk about how this offense struggles, people are going to wonder why. <laughs> you know, why why is this happening? You know, and Josh McCown and Johnny Menzel, your starting quarterbacks, you, 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 you ruined us all by, by – choosing to have a press conference to unleash a very, very similar logo, basically the exact same logo. I mean, who are we kidding here? So um, it just seems like every time they break news, it's really to waste our time, whether it's another redundant story about Josh Gordon, about what he got into. Um, I think we'll see some redundancy in what Manziel does, even though I think he'll get out of rehab fine. But, I mean, he's he's still going to be, you know, Johnny Manziel. So, um, but good luck with that. You know what I'm saying? You know, uh, the Cleveland Browns is kind of like everyone's little brother right now. You know, you look at them, you see their talent, you see their potential. But right now, you know, they don't they don't realize their own talent and their own potential. So you can just kind of laugh and sneak past them and, and, you know, win where you can. So, um, yeah, my, my joke is the Cleveland Browns. I mean, they they haven't done anything to make me take them seriously, to be honest. <laughs> That's the truth. And it's actually funny. You kind of read my mind on that one. Uh, I was going in a similar direction with that. Uh, John, what is your April Fool's prank 
You know, if if I was to be cruel to you, I'd say Chris Bryant, but we're going to save that, I guess, for later on. But that, I think, would be the the cruelest one of all. Um, But uh, uh, earlier today, the the Celtics getting ready for their game with Indiana. Unfortunately, from time to time, when you have shoot-arounds, you have uh, one-on-one drills that uh, from time to time take place. And uh, uh, for those people that may be watching the Celtics game at the moment, you're noticing that Kelly Olenek is playing with one eye pretty much shut from an elbow that he took during a, a one-on-one shoot-around uh, little game that took place earlier today. But despite the fact that he's only playing with one eye that he can see from, uh, his left eye has got a four-stitch uh, cut and uh, is pretty much swollen uh, to a uh, pretty significant uh, uh, look, and it really is an ugly-looking uh, look. He's, uh, he's been able to put 19 points on the board despite the fact that he's only using one eye. It's a rather impressive performance for somebody who's uh, pretty much playing basketball as a one-eyed bandit. Uh, that's the kind of uh, cruel April Fool's joke that I don't think Brad Stevens was very much interested in, but it's one he's taking advantage of right now. Yes. Well, mine actually came from earlier in the show. I had everybody thinking that Rolando McLean signed with the Patriots when he indeed signed a one-year deal with the Dallas Cowboys. So, April Fool's. <laughs> oh, you know, you snuck that one past me. <laughs> no, well, I, really- I knew that he had left Foxborough without a contract, and so I, I, I didn't think that the Patriots were actually going to bring him back, but uh, there was that possibility. But I did know he had left Foxborough without a contract. Uh Actually, his time here in Foxborough, when he showed up earlier in the week to uh, to visit with the Patriots, didn't last as long as some people thought it might have. So I think that would have led to the impression that uh, they really weren't all that interested in him. Yes, yes. Well, again, to throw it back to me, thank you. Thank you for letting me slide that by you. I will actually be not on call anymore, <laughs> so I'll be touring with Kevin Hart. Uh, oh, so... really, Josh? Oh, really? my God. Really? Wow! I didn't realize that you had now. a second career that was uh, fast approaching. I did. I'm a pretty good comedian. Uh, I had to test it out on here first, and it, apparently it worked. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Maybe we can give me a special on Comedy Central. Uh, that's the next step. Um, but, no, uh, Montel, I want to go back to yours because it's exactly – like I said, you, you stole that one from me, uh, reading my mind, and it's the truth. Uh, anything the Cleveland Browns are trying to do, and really, uh, for me, mine has to pertain to the draft. Um, if, if you really are out there and adamant that you're going to try and trade up for Marcus Mariota, if he slides farther than what people are expecting him to, I'm sorry, Cleveland fans. You guys can come be Vikings fans, and we can all be sour and sore together because that's at least we can give you an honest fan base for the most part. Um, I mean, come on. Let, let's be real. Uh, you know, if we have to, you know, I'll even bring it into it. Come on, Browns. Like, for real? You cannot you, – you can't do that. Uh, so, basically, that's my April Fool. You know, that would be my April Fools is the fact that there, are they seriously trying to trade up to get Marcus Mariota. Uh, that means that, obviously, in the short amount of time that you had Johnny Manziel, you realize that you have a flame, and it's burning out, and it's burning out quickly. 
uh, or the fact that maybe you felt so much pressure from Ray Farmer, the general manager, to draft him that you didn't want to play him, uh, which ended up happening anyway uh, later in the season. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. But at the same time, you can't ignore it. Uh, so, Montel, I do want to throw that back at you before we, we get on with it. If they, if they really do trade up to get Marcus Mariota, do we just need to send a care package to Cleveland? Um, you know, maybe some tissues, uh, maybe some water, um, because I got a feeling that place is going to flood with the tears of Cleveland fans uh, just because it seemed like Johnny Manziel was their savior last year. But instead, he was actually the DJ for the for the city parties. Uh, what's your thought on that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. If I find out that the Browns uh, trade up to get Mariota, especially if they use that 17 and that 19 or some type of combination involving those two first-round picks, um, I'm just going to find out uh, what Ray Farmer's address is and just in cardboard boxes this way, because I know Jimmy Haslam better have him out of his office <laughs> quicker than anyone's ever been out of their office fired, because there's just there's just only so much you can do to defend a guy. You know, you try to stick with the new GM and, and let him do some different things. Uh, but last year he botched the draft. I mean, he was very he was bailed out by Joel Batonio, who he got in the second round, who wound up being as good as any first rounder. But virtually nothing from Manziel, virtually nothing from uh, Gilbert. Uh, both, uh, you know, could still turn that around, you know, in the next year or two years. We'll see where that goes. But uh, very disappointing showing for them. And, uh, I mean, what do, you, what do you do then? You get Mariota, then what? Now, if they do it for Winston, then, then maybe there's, you know, some upside there because you say, okay, well, this dude can play right away. If he's going to be good, he's going to be good. If he's not, he's not. But you're trading for a quarterback who just needs time to develop. And you're the Cleveland Browns. How do you, how do you afford to trade for a guy you can't play right away when you did the exact same thing last year with Manziel. So I don't, I don't, I don't get that at all. John, do you got anything on the scenario or the situation? Look, I just think the Browns are a front office that really doesn't know what they want to do. They're not quite sure of the direction that they want to take. Maybe they were convinced of it somewhat last year, and that led to the Manziel pick, who kind of fell into their lap at, at 22. But I think that this is an organization that, unfortunately, uh, because of the lack of, of direction and because of the uh, uh, the overall you know stumbling and bumbling that they have done since uh, this time last year, it really has affected whatever direction they're trying to go in. It really has, uh, I think, angered the fan base to some extent. Uh, you know, Brian Hoyer did a very good job for them and almost led them to the playoffs, uh, despite the fact that at the time people really didn't want him playing. But uh, it, it just appears that um, the way that this uh, this organization is running this football team, that uh, either some drastic changes need to be made in terms of who is making the decisions or just a complete uh, turnaround in philosophy is, is going to be needed. Exactly, John. They've been bad for a while, you know, and they've, been, yeah. they've gotten better this year. You know, they've gotten competitive. But you gotta you got to cash in on some of these picks. You know, if, if you're having a bad season, you have a bad season. But – having a bad season and then not drafting players that, you know, not having anything to show for it. You know, the, the worst part season. about last year for the Browns was is that they gave the fan base some hope based on somebody playing quarterback that they really didn't expect. So now they have to take it to another level, and it just appears that they don't know which direction that level is in. 
Exactly, and I think it's more about selling tickets or less about selling tickets this year, more about winning, you know. It's kind of like their bluff is being called, you know. Is he your guy? you got to stand with him. So they got to stand with Manziel here in 2015. Well, you do because of the amount of money that you've given him and the amount of guaranteed money that you've given him and, and how much that contract is going to count against the cap. And so that becomes a problem for them as well. And uh, if they can't get anything out of Manziel, I don't think trading up for, for Mariota is really going to, uh, to solve anything because you're just going to have too much money invested in one position. And unfortunately, it's going to leave you kind of shorthanded at others. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, again, Montel's reading my mind. Um uh, uh, with that, Montel, I mean, you're reading my mind so well. I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you be the host. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no. <laughs> okay. Well, the coming up on Chicago Bears news. Uh, <laughs> you know, we got a. We got a. We have a new signing. You know, a couple new guys added. Sam Ocho, Ocho. You know, so that, that, there you have it. That, that's that's where I'd go. You know what I'm saying? We could just do Bears all day, Josh. You you know me. <laughs> Yeah, I would, and unfortunately, I wouldn't be tuning into that. Unfortunately, as much as I love listening to you and working with you, I'm a Vikings fan, so I can't listen to Bears talk. Yet alone, had Don talk about the Patriots all year long last year, and just keep telling us, "Oh, they're going to make the Super Bowl." Yeah, keep telling us that, John. And then, of course, they win the Super Bowl, and I'm like, oh, "Now I actually got to listen to them talk about." Oh, the I'm sorry, I just kind of knew where this thing was headed, and well, it headed in that direction. <laughs> It happens, it happens. Well, John, this is something that we've been waiting on all evening because I know you're getting ready to to just lay some knowledge on me and really want to see why I'm so angry. So here we have it. <laughs> well, Chris I know you're Pine. angry, but go ahead, by, by all means. Display your Pine. anger for, for the masses that want to hear a, a different tone of voice from you. <laughs> all right, now i got to get my angry face on. Uh, and get my angry tone. No, the, the Chris Bryant scenario. Uh, why would they call him down to the minors just to save him that one year, uh, you know, him being a free agent after 2020 instead of 2021? I don't know. This kid is ready. No, you do know. You just answered your own question. That's the fact. What if he's done? But that's the thing. You know baseball. I mean, you know baseball way better than all of us. What if he is <laughs> not – what if he's not – the, the same player he was at, at twenty by twenty twenty. Uh, now we either have to cut him and cut our losses, or we can do that. And the fact of the matter is, if they move him down, here's you know before you even get to that, you know here's his stats in forty at bats in a spring game. Granted, they're spring games, so they don't mean a whole lot, but forty at bats nonetheless. He's batting four twenty nine, nine home runs, fifteen RBIs, and has a slugging percentage of one point one seven five, uh, and that's forty at bats. This dude needs to be in Chicago. I understand Theo Epstein has never started a rookie on opening day, but I'm, I'm sorry, true. Theo. Going back, going back to his days with the Red Sox, that is true. Yep, but I'm sorry, Theo. Uh, the clock in Chicago has struck midnight, and it's been at midnight for the last 100-plus years. We cannot <laughs> wait any longer. We cannot afford – being a Cubs fan, I'm happy I don't live in Chicago because – I would be upset going to Wrigley Stadium, which is one of the – or Wrigley Field. Field, Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field Stadium. I would be upset going to their ballpark and not being able to sit in bleachers 
I mean, I'm going to a ballpark yet. I can't sit in bleachers uh, when I'm going to be paying for it. And it, I'm more likely, with it being Wrigley Field, I'm going to be paying a good amount of money. Uh, that's one strike. But the second strike is that you cannot afford, especially in the NL Central, to have a slow start with the fact that the Brewers play usually pretty good baseball. The Cardinals are usually pretty dominant. And the Pirates have been around uh, for the last couple of years, and they're itching at the, you know, they're basically pounding their hands on the table. Uh, they're ready to eat. Don't forget Cubs, Cincinnati. Uh, yeah, yeah, Cincinnati, yeah. <laughs> you can, yeah, yeah. And as John said, folks, Cincinnati. Uh, but, you, again, that just strengthened my argument. They can't afford to have a slow start. You know, they, they can't afford to, even if they send them down for nine games, they cannot afford that. And the fact that, you know, I understand send, sending Javi down. You know, you send you know, Javier Baez down, that's good for him. Uh, you know, this is a guy who, who's not truly ready to play. He was called up last year because they needed a guy to basically be a filler. Uh, Josh Vetter, you know, Vitters wasn't the guy that everybody thought he was when they drafted him in the first round. Javi came up because he, at the time, was ready. Chris Bryant is ready right now. This dude well, is Josh, I think, I think the question here is, if you're going to do this, are you absolutely sure Chris Bryant is that transcendent player? I mean, you said it just up. 104 years, right? The clock has struck midnight. So Chris Bryant, is, is he's the transcendent player. He, he's, he's the guy? He, he is? Is that, is that I, really I, what gets you there? Yes. I think see, uh, watching enough Chicago baseball, uh, we have enough young talent, in, you know, like we mentioned before in the preview when we had Twan on, you know, a month back. They added John Lester. They added, you know, some, some good, you know, players, you know, guys that can come in and fill roles when need be and even got themselves a starting pitcher since they decided to trade away Jeff Samarja last year. Adding yeah, but Bryant, it's, it's true, but uh, you think about it this way. Um, if, if you look at, especially third baseman, if you use, like, some defensive offensive statistics, you look at maybe wins above replacement. There are strong numbers that suggest that even if you keep Chris Bryant, you might be six wins better. I mean, if from a pure production standpoint, unless he's had maybe one of the great seasons a rookie third baseman can ever have, that's that's about where he'd be. Yeah, so it, it is bold. It's bold, but being you see, you're you're okay. You're you're a White Sox fan. You guys have a World Series ring. You can look at it and shine it, you know, and, and wear it around. We don't have <laughs> we don't even have a World Series flag that's probably still able to be flown. Uh, we need something. And again, maybe you know, in terms of the stats, you know, when you get into the stats, maybe the stats will be better. But. The, the Cubs need something to lean on. We have Anthony Rizzo. Yeah, we have Starlin Castro. But he's not – he's a hitter, but he, he struggles in the field. Um, at least he's proven over the last well, few years. Look, he's struggled in the field. You're kind of getting away from the subject here. This is about service time. And service time is a very important uh, part of, of this particular conversation because it really is the driving factor for why the Cubs did this. You can send Chris Bryant down, which they did on uh, Monday, and you can leave him there for anywhere from 12 to 20 days, which is probably what the Cubs would do. I, I suspect that Chris Bryant will be back in Chicago by the 1st of May. Uh, but by doing this, you add another year to the, uh, the free agency potential down the road for Chris Bryant. So now 
he would become a free agent after the 2021 season. So he would have seven years in the Cubs organization to, uh, to make his case and to, um, to bring his value up to where he and his agent, Scott Boris, really believe that it will eventually be when his first opportunity of free agency will hit. In the meantime, the Cubs, with all of these prospects that they have, really have seven years to put themselves in position to win that elusive world championship that Josh is talking about. It's, it's a move that every major league team makes with their best prospects because they want to keep them in the organization for as long as they possibly can, under their control for as long as they possibly can, until the day finally comes that they have to pay them what most people would call the outrageous money. That is what happened. Now, Bryant has got, as I said, Scott Boris as his agent. Scott Boris was very unhappy at this particular move, and he made that quite clear uh, during the Mondays uh, after the Cubs finally made the move. The Major League Baseball Players Association also issued their statement in which they threatened litigation based on this. They were not happy. But you know what? Major League Baseball's Players Association has to remember the fact that when the last collective bargaining agreement was negotiated between the owners and the players, they agreed to this. So if they want to take this out of uh, the next bargaining session, which will come up after the 2016 season, that's fine. But you're stuck with what you agreed to. So if you're going to threaten litigation, you need to have something behind it, and they really don't. Um, you know, Theo Epstein made his comment uh, uh, once Bryant was set down, saying that this is not something that young players want to hear at this time of, of the spring training, the training process. They never want to hear that they're being sent down, especially when they're playing well. He's right, but he knew what he was doing. And uh, as I say, I do expect that Chris Bryant will be back uh, by the 1st of May. I think the interesting thing is, where does he end up playing? Now, Joe Madden had talked about the possibility of putting Chris Bryant in the outfield just to see if he could play out there and try and find ways to keep his bat in the lineup by putting him there as opposed to his natural position of third base because the Cubs already have somebody to play third base at least for this year. So there are a couple of different options that I think will eventually be explored. And if you're going to send Bryant down to AAA Iowa for 12 to 20 days, then giving him an opportunity to see if he can play in the outfield would be uh, a practical thing to do while he's there. Yeah, like I said, you know, I understand that, you know, everything that, you know, it, it blows in and, you know, and that's fine and dandy. Uh, but, like I said, the, the Cubs have to find a way to get this guy going and they have to get him in there. Now, uh, oh, I think they will. Look, like I say, service time is a way for teams to keep players under control for as long as they possibly can before they start having to throw money at, at an individual, in this case, Chris Bryant. And that's what yes. the Cubs did. They, exactly. they knew what they were doing, they understand what they were doing. And like I say, uh, I expect that by the 1st of May, he'll be back with the team and uh, everything will just go from there. Yeah, and I don't think the NL Central, you know, I'll just go on the record and say, I don't think the NL, NL Central is that great this year. You know, I, I don't think the Brewers and the Reds are going to be just hot this year. I don't, I don't think – I mean, the Cardinals find a way to do it. They they always find a way to do it. But, you know, I mean, the Pirates, they're out there. They're going to do it. But, I mean, I just can't look at this division and say, okay, well, this is the division where you have to start off hot in April. No. It, it it may take just maybe I mean it, you could might maybe win this this division with uh, ninety games or a little bit less, 
so well, let's we'll face see it, this it is a Cubs team that we don't necessarily expect is going to be a division contender this year. Oh, 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 but no, it no. is but, a but team that could be. Right? They are expected to compete. I mean, this is a team that could. Uh, could sneak their way into the wild card race for a while. It could be a team that plays 500 baseball, maybe even a little better than that. But this yeah, is a that's team that's saying. built yeah. for the future. Now, this is a team that's that's built for two or three years down the road. That's where all of these prospects hopefully have uh, matured their games to the point where the Cubs can say, okay, now we can take a, a, a serious and legitimate run at this. That's why the Lester contract is as long as it is to provide these kids with an opportunity to get their feet wet, and once they do and understand what a 162-game season is all about and become comfortable with the idea of what is expected of them, that then they can take their shot at it. So I, I just don't think that uh, you know Chris Bryant being sent to AAA Iowa for 20 days is all that big a deal. I understand from a financial uh, perspective why it was done, and as I say, every team does this. And Scott Boris knows it, by the way. He'll eventually get what he wants down the road. He just isn't going to get it today, that's all. But uh, this is just something that uh, you know, Major League Baseball does because having young, top, talented prospects under control is really something that every Major League team desperately tries to keep for as long as they can because they know what eventually is going to happen. Free agency hits. Yes, the the one thing, another reason why we have to have it. You guys are forgetting the the big the big key here. Uh, Back to the Future predicted that the Cubs were going to win the World Series this year. That's oh, gone. Wait, yeah, and, and you know how and, old that movie is, by the way. But I, it still it still says 2015 Chicago Cubs <laughs> champ. That's enough superstition for a Cubs fan to get excited. Uh, and then with Anthony Rizzo, their star first baseman, coming out and saying, yeah, I think this is the year that we can put something together, makes it all much more enticing. But if you are a fan of the Chicago Cubs and a fan of Back to the Future, you have to put your Cubs livelihood and your fanhood on the fact that they predicted us to win the World Series this year. Well, you know oh, what? God. You have a team in Washington that has a starting pitching staff that's going to be awfully difficult for teams in the National League to have to deal with. They don't. They might not need three runs to win a game, John. That's, that's um, quite possible. They, they you're you're right. Uh, I I agree <laughs> with that. Uh, I, I think that. Although I will say this, it'll be very interesting to see with that national pitching staff how that starting staff is managed as the year goes along. Uh, oh do yeah. They, oh yeah. How many of those guys go 200 innings? Uh, mm-hmm. How much of that? How much of that bullpen is going to be to be needed? Uh, how that entire staff is going to be used? to make sure that when you get to October that uh, nobody's burnt out. That's so important. It, it, it is. It, it's so important. And, and and we talked about how good the starting pitching is, but the bullpen's got to knock, knock it down. And I just see this as a team where if they can – and it's going to be hard to do a little bit, you know, for uh, a little while anyways for this team to pull away. But if they can find a way to get a distant first, I think they'll ease up a little bit and see what the bullpen can do. But you're right. You can't burn these pitchers out. You can't run them in the ground. We know Strasburg's, you know, been injured in the past. And yep. so that's something you've got to, you know, look out for in the future. But going back to the Cubs, you know, Rizzo, he, he just can't say those type of things. They need to stop. You know, it's the elephant in the room. So stop, you know, stop poking the bear, you know. <laughs> you haven't won it. Let's get to the playoffs one year and then in the off season, then you can say, okay, maybe next year, you know, we, we got it. But don't, don't, don't tease these fans like that. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> it's just I, I, look, I just fair. think that for the Cubs, for the time being, there's no bear to poke. 
the bear's got to come <laughs> into the room before he can start poking him, and, and the bear hasn't come into the room yet. But, but based on these prospects, based on the reputation that these prospects already possess, that bear is coming into the room. It's just not now, exactly. that's all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I agree completely. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, that bear is definitely walking in, and right. uh, Chris Bryant might be the pause of that bear or the jaws of that bear, whatever way you want to look at it, because, like I said... Uh, I mean, look, there's no doubt that the, that the spring yeah. training that Chris Bryant has given the Cubs certainly bodes well for the future, and it's certainly given that fan base something to really look forward to for the next four, maybe five years. And so, okay, you, you, you do what is necessary to keep him around for as long as you can uh, to really provide you with that, that shot that you, uh, you've been telling the fan base is right around the corner. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm going to continue to hope and pray that they don't mess this up because, like I said, I'm a huge Chicago Cubs fan. My mom and dad raised me into, well, at least my dad anyway, uh, kind of forced my mom to become a Cubs fan. Uh, my dad raised me into being a Cubs fan. I've been a Cubs fan ever since. Uh, I've been around for the bumps and bruises for the last 25 years of my life. And uh, I am a huge fan of Back to the Future, so I'm putting all my weight on Back to the Future. And if it's wrong, I'm going to be really huh, – I don't even know what I'll be able to do, guys. Well, uh, on the upside, if you are wrong, it's okay because, see, the Cubs have an electronic scoreboard now for the first time ever. So maybe you'll get some better walk-up music, some between-inning games, a little kiss cam. You know, <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, you that's, guys that's have stepped into the 21st century. Cubs. Congratulations. Yeah, it's very unfortunate that the Cubs now have an electronic scoreboard. I, I really did like the uh, the scoreboard that's been out there for a very long time that was manually operated as opposed to what they've now decided to do. Yeah, yeah, I did like – I mean, you look at that stadium, you look at the cell, and it's just like, man, <laughs> it's a complete 180. But, um, but, you know, this is Chicago, though. The Cubs have gotten away with being traditional besides – you know, they've got to be cutting edge. They've got to be commercial because, you know, they have to jockey for fans in this city. You know, darn Chicago White Sox fans all over the country. <laughs> they just aren't. Yeah, no, I, I got to admit, a, a guy from Montana that's a Cub fan, I'm, I'm not quite sure I make the connection there. Well, I'm originally from, I was originally born and raised in Chicago. My dad was, ah. was, my dad was stationed in Chicago for two years while he was in the Air Force. And so, uh, but him growing up in Iowa, they always had the Cubs games on TV. And he was a big Ryan Sandberg fan, so that's kind of how I became a Cubs fan. Uh, well, I mean, you know what? To, to be a fan of a Hall of Famer is never a bad thing. <laughs> Not at all. I was I was a big Sammy Sosa fan too growing up, but that's for a different day. Uh, Montel, uh, it's about that time again, brother. We'll toss it over to you for a quick update. Of course, uh, and thanks again, Josh, uh, as we head into Hour 2. You know, I'm Montel Hardy, and this is an NGSC Sports News Break. Just a reminder, you can listen to us at NGSCSports.com. Just go to the Red Talk Shoe Box to listen to us live. In the news now, a woman accused, uh, the woman who accused former Alabama defensive lineman Jonathan Taylor of assault this past weekend has since recanted her statement to police and was subsequently arrested for giving a false report, according to authorities. Tuscaloosa County Metro Homicide Unit Assistant Commander Kip Hart said the 24-year-old woman whose identity is being withheld approached investigators and provided a written statement saying she fabricated the entire story. 
More than a quarter of all helmets worn by hockey players from the NHL to youth leagues are unsafe, according to an independent study provided by Outside the Lines. That ranked ho- this study ranked hockey helmets based on their ability to reduce concussion risk. See, out of 32 helmets in the marketplace that were tested by researchers at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, nine failed to earn a single star on a five-star scale and were classified as not recommended. Just one helmet, made by Warrior Sports, received three stars. The rest received one or two. Just a little something to think about, guys, right? (laughs) He's so dangerous. Uh, As we move on, be sure to check out NGSC's hottest stories, uh, who the New York Jets is selected by, or who the NFL, or who the New York Jets is selecting the NFL draft by Twan Staley, Steve Kerr, Splash and Golden State by G. Steely Hill, and how Nico Miritich became suave. This is by NGSC's newest sports writer, sports columnist, NBA sports columnist, Jake Stanley. He's a good buddy of mine. Make sure you check out his articles. He will be doing some long-form opinions pieces, uh, that type of thing. Uh, Jake is great. You'll love that guy. Anyways, you can check out all these stories and so much more on our homepage at NGSCSports.com. Once again, you're listening to the NGSC Weekly flagship show on NGSC Sports Radio, available on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, and iTunes. I'm on to Hardy. Back to you, Josh. So hey. I'm curious, what does Nick Saban now do? Hey, well, you take him back. Exactly. You give him a jersey. This is the yeah, SEC. That's, that's <laughs> exactly, that's exactly but after the press conference that he held earlier this week in which he, you know, really tried to distance himself from Jonathan Taylor and, uh, you know, I gave him a second chance. It didn't quite work out, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now he comes to find out that the woman just pretty much lied through the entire thing. So, and well, by the way, well, Alabama's already dismissed the second the player. Mm-hmm. And well, Alabama has now dismissed a second player for uh, another bit of nonsense that's been taking on uh, taking place off the field. Mm-hmm. What well, is Nick Saban running down there? Uh, I mean, it's the SEC. You know, it's it's uh, it's fast and it's dirty down there. You know, they you know recruiting all that with these players and. You know, the press conference was contingent on him breaking the law and doing what he did. So if it's uh, if it comes out that he's innocent, which man, this story seems really fishy. But if it's if it's true and everything checks out, he should be welcome to log back on. Um, he'll be reinstated for eligibility, and uh, he could <laughs> be a potential draft prospect as a part of Alabama's defensive line. So here's the problem I have with this around. story. Here's the problem I have. Did the girl do this because it really didn't happen, or did the girl do this to save Jonathan Taylor's eligibility and potential NFL life? It's clear. I mean, my belief is that it was the uh, it was the latter rather than the former. I think this happens all the time. I mean, not to bring up you know too not to go too deep into what happened at Florida State, but you know there are uh, issues there at Notre Dame. If you're familiar with the Prince Shembo story. Um, people do this. I mean, people don't do this, but this tends to happen. It's a disturbing trend, but people claim that they were raped and then recanted. And a lot of times, maybe they leave with, you know, mental scars. You know, Alabama has a very active fan base. Florida State has a very active fan base, and Notre Dame does as well. And these people can harass. And so, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, a really, it's a really tense situation to be in if you're going to continue to stay on that campus. Uh, while, uh, you know, uh, accusing a player of uh, any type of, you know, sexual assault. And that was my biggest thing too, Montel. Uh, It's it's actually funny. Again, guys, this dude is reading my mind because last night when I was writing the rundown for us, 
I was actually almost tempted to throw out the Chris Bryant dilemma, although it was fun, and put in th- this conversation, you know, this story and conversation that we're talking about because it is interesting by the fact that, you know, you look at what ha- has happened in the NCAA and even in the NFL over the last couple of years, uh, not necessarily rape, but domestic violence, uh, things like that. Uh, the fact that, you know, this kid had a shot. You know, this kid got a second chance at Alabama. You know, Nick Saban did say that. He's like, I am not apologizing for giving this kid a second opportunity. Uh, and I, can, I commend him for that because not a whole lot of programs would do that. You know, you got to understand, too, you know, yeah, this is a young kid who, who might have got himself into trouble, but he needs guidance. And if there's one person out there in the entire country who I trust to guide my child, it would be Nick Saban. Uh, this guy has proven that he, he ain't just in it to make NFL prospects, although he does a pretty mm. damn good job of doing it. He does a really good job of doing it. But if you go on and you look at the new athletic facility that they had built, which was $12.6 million funded all through the football program, they have executive mock, you know, they have executive offices built in there so that these players can have mock interviews to get ready for personal life, you know, to get ready for life after football. So I do commend Nick Saban by giving this kid a second chance. And now, folks, what have we learned? You have learned that you are innocent until proven guilty by any means. We jumped on this kid. Alabama did the smart thing after what's happened over the last, you know, couple months with with cases similar to this, and they released him. But – now it comes out that this is a phony story. What do you do with this kid? Uh, like you said, Montel, you can offer him to come back. Is he going to want to come back is the thing, uh, which, again, brings to the next question. Where is, you know, is this kid going to find another school? Uh, Alabama sure, is sure second he will. school. Sure, sure yeah, he will. Alabama sure is the second school. And granted, you know, if you get a chance from Alabama, you're pretty damn guaranteed to get a chance from anywhere else in the country. But Absolutely. The fact that everything falls under that, you know, it's very unfortunate for him, and I hope Alabama does the right thing, uh, you know, to end this so we can get into our our, our basketball preview because uh, I know everybody's dying to hear how we did in our brackets. Um, you know, to end this, Alabama, I hope, does the right thing and say, you know what, you are, you know, you're allowed back on the team. Uh, you can work your way into, you know, to basically where you were before this incident ever happened. And we'll go from there and, you know, uh, basically just kind of have like a, have a deal with him, you know, tell him like, Hey, you're, you know, you're, you're back. But if any, if anything, you get caught with drugs, you skip class, grades fall, you're, you're gone. You know, that will be your third strike. Uh, I think if Alabama does that, uh, they'll show that they're not just in it to win it. They're in it to help, you know, these kids lives which people need to understand is the bigger picture other than just making millions of dollars in the NFL and playing for, you know, Nick Saban. Um, But going to transfer, boys, I can't obviously be there with you. And the way technology works, I can't kind of put my hand into the phone. But go ahead and just give your guys, you know, a quick self, uh, you know, pat on the back. Uh, We did pretty damn well. Uh, we picked Michigan State to win. We picked Duke to win. Uh, we didn't pick Kentucky, but we did when we did our repick, uh, people, if you don't remember. Uh, but we did pick Wisconsin. 
So there you have it. You know, that's the final four. Uh, Kentucky, Wisconsin, two number ones against the winner of Michigan State Duke, a seven versus a one. Uh, as we talked about last week, we do expect Michigan State and Duke to be a, to be a bloodbath, uh, you know, kind of similar to what it was with Louisville, Michigan State. We said that last week, John, that Duke-Michigan State was going to be a bloodbath uh, heading into this game. You know they're going to play each other physical because it's not only two storied programs, but it's two very storied coaches. Do you want to retract the, that statement, or do you still believe that it's going to be a bloodbath come the fourth? Well, I, as I said, I think it's talent against toughness, and I, I do expect that talent will win out here. I think that uh, – you know, Duke's been getting an awful lot from Winslow, from the, the wing, being able to uh, to score points for them both uh, on the blocks and, and with, uh, you know, wing jump shots from from either side. He's really made life easier for Okafor to be able to do his thing uh, on the blocks, and he's made it even easier for Jones and Cook at the guard position to be able to uh, to shoot the basketball and be able to penetrate with the basketball. Winslow has really become the X factor for this basketball team that's allowed them to be where they are. You know, Michigan State has, has just its just been a gutty performance since the tournament began. And, you know, this was a team that I don't think many people thought would get out of the first weekend. But Tom Enzo's done a great job with this team. This team always seems to get it together at this time of the year. They've done it again. Uh, I just think that they, they don't necessarily have enough talent uh, to be able to match up with Duke. They certainly have the toughness. It's just a question of whether they can... Uh, whether they can keep themselves in the game. If you go back to Sunday's game against Louisville, think about it. Missed free throws by Louisville down the stretch really did contribute to that eventual loss. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. fact that uh, Louisville, unfortunately, went through uh, a, a, a scoring slump, which has been um, it's the unfortunate part of their team this year. I mean, Rick Pitino said it at halftime. They played awfully well in that first half. They scored a lot of points. The offense looked really, really sharp. But in that second half, boy, it, it went south real quick. They only got six field goals in the second half and in overtime combined. That's just not going to get it done. Yeah, and, and usually when you pick uh, Patinos, it, it seems like you know some similar happened to them last year, but they rebounded. But this year, to me, it, it's been all about that. And it's just funny the way it's worked out is Patinos' teams defend so well. And when you pick them, that's what you pick them for. It's because you know nights like that. Because, you know, John, they win those games sometimes. You know, yeah. they, they they have. And, and and I thought that would be one of those nights where they do it, you know, with very little offense. Well, and, you know, and, and that's what really, you know, it goes back to Izzo's toughness and, and how he really, you know, gets that team to understand uh, the one-and-done format that is this tournament, the, the weekend aspect of this tournament. It's, it's three mini-tournaments that comprises one big one. And uh, I think nobody understands that better than Izzo does. And uh, I think his team's just reflected in the way they play. Yeah, yeah. If we, if you had to pick an X factor for each team, uh, who is it going to be? I haven't watched a lot of Michigan State, but I would say my X factor for Michigan State is going to be whether or not Izzo's on his game, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, it's coach versus coach. If Izzo's on his game, uh, it's going to be a tough one. And then, of course, for Duke, it's, whether or not Jalil Okafor uh, is the same player that he's been virtually the entire season. Um, but Montel, uh, what would be your X factors for this game? 
Uh, well, you know, we talked a little bit about Michigan State and then how, well, first off, you have great guard play. You can get to wherever you want to go in the tournament, and that's what Michigan State has had. I think I told you they've been uh, led by their upperclassmen guard, and I'm just, you know, I've just been so impressed with them. But to me, you know, it's about Duke. It's about Jaleel Okafor. He has the type of uh, the maturity in this game you look for. I think of old-school basketball whenever I see him play. He just uh, he plays intelligent, and he's more fundamentally sound, I think, than he gets credit for. So he's an X-factor to me. If he goes in and does his business as usual, Michigan State could find themselves, you know, struggling to stay with intent, and that's in all seriousness. Now, I'm pulling for him, and I like to see a great game. But Izzo, I mean, they're, I mean, he's just he's got them playing on a whole other level. But will they match up body to body with this uh, with this Duke team? I don't know. If I, they think the, I think I think the the big decision that Izzo's got to make right off the bat is: does he double Okafor every time the ball goes to the post, or does he play him straight out? Because Winslow has been been doing some damage both on like I said on the blocks and on the wing and I think that uh, you know if he goes man up with Okafor and, and Okafor starts to, to do his thing score points yeah. rebounds become a presence that's really going to pro- cause a problem for Izzo because I just don't think that he's got uh, enough big man talent to be able to offset Okafor just going off exactly and you saw the way uh, you know uh, the way the Kentucky game and how Notre Dame tried to play Towns, right? They said, we're not going to double him. We're going to let him beat us. And then he did. <laughs> you know, but, you know, did. Notre Dame really didn't have a choice. I mean, let's face it. They didn't have enough size uh, to be able to uh, to really do anything else but try and, and limit the other four guys and just let Towns do his thing. And, I mean, they, they put it in Towns' shoulders to be able to beat them. I think that Mike Bray really did come up with a, a fantastic game plan for that game, and it almost worked. I mean, you know, for 30 Yeah, yeah, they had to stop them on that last basket. That's all right. they needed. That was all they needed. I, you know, for, for what, for 38 and a half minutes, that, that game plan was going absolutely perfectly. And, you know, Grant went for the dagger, and, and you, you can't really fault Grant for going for the dagger because I think if that's Notre Dame had decided to go overtime in that game, it would have been their death now. Yep, yep, and that's why that's why you, that's what you have to do to a team like Kentucky. You, yep. you, if you're gonna beat them, you can't you can't do it easily. You know, you got to step on their neck, and so they tried to do it uh, down the stretch. They had two very poor offensive possessions, though. You know, just chucked yeah, up two, two threes, two of the threes. One of which was kind of okay, but another, the second one was like, you know, you got to have a better plan here. You know, so but that was that was my only thing. But it, it was a very well coached game um, between Absolutely. the two coaches. Between the two coaches, it was a chess match all the way through. Now, Bo Ryan's got the talent that, that Notre Dame did not have. He's got the size in the middle. So it'll be interesting to see if Bo Ryan tries to take some of the principles that Mike Bray put together for his game plan and incorporate it into what his team possesses and see if he leaves Frank Kaminsky on that island by himself with Towns and see what happens. Exactly. Uh, you guys have you know virtually covered both of them, uh, so we'll get right into it. Uh, our picks. We picked Duke. We, we've oh, I still like that. I, 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 I'm still comfortable with that one. Montel, are we still going to ride with Duke? No, oh, he's thinking. Oh, oh, he's thinking. Maybe he's, <laughs> he is thinking. I, I, I think he's out there thinking. Either that, or he's just soaking up too much, too much, uh, soaked up too much sunshine, sitting in that recliner, that hammock, right? It sounds like it, yeah. He may have fell off. I don't know. 
All right, well, we'll get we'll get back to Montel on that pick. Uh, Say that one more time, guys. I'm sorry. See, oh, no, he, see, he did. He came back. Yeah, he, he's back. He the hammock must have broke, so he had to retie it. Uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, but yeah, just going back to Wisconsin, I, I think they're going to be the team that does it, and uh, I think they're going to be the team that wins that that night. Uh, you know, I was just thinking, you know, Kaminsky's just such a great scorer. Uh, what he gets, what he did against Arizona, you know, should have been outlawed. <laughs> you know, he was very, 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 uh, you know, dominant with the ball. And he can do so many different things. And then you got Sam Decker. This guy, to me, has been so underappreciated. But that's a very good basketball player, and he can, you know, he can run the floor. He can shoot the ball with range. He does all the things you really need a, a guy like him to do. You know, wing player, guard. You know, and so, uh, you know, I, I like this team the way they play up front. And, and I like the, their ability to score. Uh, so, so apparently we like <clears> – <throat> so our pick of Duke-Wisconsin for the national championship is still there. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I will continue to ride with Wisconsin on Wisconsin. Uh, I am going to pick Michigan State, though, because you guys know how I pick. Uh, Unfortunately, I yeah. Sparty. Hey, hey, we've done a good job so far with the way I've picked, fellas. Uh, we've done a pretty darn good job so far. I mean, we wouldn't even so actually, have... So where are we? You, you haven't even told us where we are. Where are we with this thing? Well, we're in the 90th percentile. We have 890 points, which virtually puts us in the... Wow. Wow. Top... The 90th percentile. Yeah. Yeah, we're in the 90th percentile. So I think in terms of actual, you know, one through a couple hundred million rankings... I think it said we were at, let me check for you here. Uh, we're just a shade over 27,000. That's good. Man, that's really but, good, man. Yeah. Now, I'm assuming more. that the majority of the people that are above us all pick the same team, which would be Kentucky. Yeah, they have a, you know, the feature, uh, it, this tournament challenge thing is pretty cool. Uh, they have some featured brackets. Out of the feature brackets, the three people who are ahead of us are J.A. Adonde at 930. He's number three. Kevin Hart has 930. He's number two. Mike Golick is at 950. He's number one. We're in front of Matthew Berry, Dan Levitard, Jeff Goodman, SVP, Will Farrell, Virgil Green. We're even in front of the president. Maybe we should try and get a hold of the president so that he can get our picks Next yeah, week. I was kind of curious how his bracket was going. I don't oh. think it went too well, but I think I think he fell in love with Michigan State, though. He always, he always he? goes Midwest. Well, he picked uh, he picked Villanova to to play in the national championship game, so that's what kind of hurt him. Ah, Ouch. Yeah, let's take a look here. He picked Wyoming over Northern Iowa. Picked Ooh. Virginia. He picked Virginia over Belmont. Okay. Uh, picked, picked SMU. Picked Iowa State. Picked Davidson. Uh, let's see. Ooh, that first day was a brutal one for him, wasn't it? Yeah, he picked Ole Miss. <laughs> <laughs> he picked Ole Miss. Picked Baylor. He picked uh, picked Kansas to go to the Sweet Sixteen. Ooh. Picked Texas. Picked Maryland. Yeah, uh, it wasn't pretty for uh, for President Obama. But oh, that hey, first weekend, pretty much just that was a dagger. Yikes. <laughs> But hey, that's why he's the president, not a basketball analyst. Uh, leave it to the right boys, because we're sitting at number three. Technically, we're doing a pretty wow. darn good job if we had a feature bracket. Um, 
So we do have a feature bracket, or we don't? What, what did you set no, us we, up in? The we're in a normal we're in the normal bracket. Feature brackets are for famous people, and unfortunately, ah. we're just not famous yet. Uh, no, we're, we're getting not. There. That's true. Our, our bracket made us famous. That's for sure. Uh, well, one day. Like one I said, day. Like I said, if we were if we were in the feature brackets, we would be at number four uh, with 890 points. We'd be over Matthew Berry by 50. But I'm assuming uh, if Duke Wisconsin actually makes it to the national championship game, that our stock would go probably through the roof based on the majority of people thinking that Kentucky will get there. Yeah. Uh, so let's keep our fingers crossed because, like I said, we've been doing a good job. Mm. Uh, so there is our tournament uh, wrap up, John. We got a just a couple minutes to touch on the Frozen Four. Uh, so we'll go straight to that. UND, Boston University, the winner will face Omaha Providence. Uh, both of those games take place on the ninth. Uh, in the first game, who do you have UND over Boston University? I'm assuming well, you, you've I got to be really unhappy with this because Boston University and North Dakota are playing in the semifinals as opposed to the national championship potential. Yeah, she probably is. I'm going to pick Boston University because I don't like the University of North Dakota. Uh, well, I, look, I think BU's got the best first line in the country. I said it last week. Uh, but, you know, I, Jack Eichel, Evan Rodriguez, Danny O'Regan, they came through against Yale. Uh, they came through against Minnesota Duluth, although Eichel didn't score in that game. Uh, I just think that Boston, you know, and the other part of it is Boston University has some comfort in the TD Garden based on the fact that they've already played four games in that building two Beanpot games, two games in the Hockey East uh, semifinals and finals. So they have, uh, they have an idea of how that, uh, that ice surface plays and, and the environment and the whole bit. Uh, so I, I think BU will, uh, will get themselves to the national championship game. All right, so we have Boston University. You guys heard it first, folks. And, of course, yeah, he's going to make it sound really analytical and very, very intelligent, but let's be real. There's a bit of favoritism playing there because it's a Boston-based team. Uh, come on, John, I know that. I well, know let's face it, and as I said, they have, you know, they, they play games <laughs> in the Garden every year, so uh, they do have an advantage. It may not be a great advantage, but they do have an advantage here. <laughs> folks, he's not going to, he's not going to, he's not going to break. He's not going to break. That's the IQ for you right there. Well, who are they going to play? Let's face it, they've got the best player in the country playing for them, and I do think that that's also an advantage that has to be taken into consideration. I mean, Jack Eichel is going to win the Hobie Baker Award uh, as well as the potentially playing for a national championship here. <laughs> hey, without a doubt, that, that kid's a freak. I've had a chance to uh, Absolutely. That dude's awesome. But, again, John, who are they going to play? Omaha or Providence? I'll tell you what. Nebraska-Omaha was the one team that I did not think would get here. That team had only won two out of its last ten games. But they really got it together last weekend in South Bend. Only gave up one goal in the two games that uh, they played against uh, uh, Harvard and against RIT. Ryan Massey was very good in that, uh, in that regional, stopping uh, uh, a lot of shots. As uh, Both teams were really able to, uh, to, to go after him in that tournament uh, out there. But... Uh, you know, Dean Blaze did a great job. He was really able to uh, to get that team to uh, to get it back together again, and they found uh, a way to uh, to get themselves to what I think is a rather uh, unlikely place, which is uh, the Garden. But uh, you know, Massey stopped 73 out of 74 shots. Uh, the only goal he gave up was to Jimmy Vesey of Harvard in the third period of the uh, of the semifinal game. Uh, I didn't expect Nebraska Omaha to get there. You know, I'm tempted to say this is going to be a hockey East final. Uh, Boston University against Providence, but uh, 
you got to ride a hot goaltender. And right now, I think Nebraska Omaha's got that hot goaltender. Hey, I like that pick, and I don't know why. Maybe it's just because it's a you know it's a central based team. Uh, maybe it's because my, my I have some family in Omaha. Who knows? Um, but I like that pick. So here we go, John. Boston University or Omaha? Who wins the national? Oh, I think if if it's BU the Brass Omaha, I think BU walks out with a championship. Ooh, I like that. Now let's play a different scenario. Just, okay. Just just because I I know it'll it'll it, you'll like it. Okay. Say, Say that, for instance, UND happens to pull the upset, which I know me and you are both rooting against. But say UND plays Omaha. Uh, how does that game go? I think it would be North Dakota. I I, I, I do. I, I think it would be North Dakota. Look, I think BU and North Dakota are the two best teams that are going to show up at the Garden. That's why I think it's disappointing that that's the semifinal matchup as opposed to a potential national championship matchup. Because I really do think in, in for college hockey, I think UN, uh, North Dakota and BU playing for the national championship is really what I think the college hockey fan base would prefer to see as opposed to Nebraska Omaha playing Providence or uh, North Dakota playing Providence or BU playing Providence or whatever. I think that really was the matchup that everybody wanted to see. Mm. But what if they play Providence? I, you know, Providence, I think, is a team that, uh, you know, back in September, they were the preseason pick to win Hockey East. It didn't work out for them. Uh, they ended up, uh, I believe, was fourth in the, in the conference, lost in the quarterfinals at home to UNH, got themselves in the tournament. They got a break in some ways because they got to play at home in the regional at the Dunkin' Donuts Center down in Providence and were able to uh, knock off Miami of Ohio by scoring seven games in that, seven goals in that first game. And then they beat Denver on Sunday to, uh, uh, to get to the Garden. Uh, I'm sure that there are people that think that uh, based on the fact that they were able to play at home, that the, that's what got them to the Garden. Um, I'm not sure that Providence really matches up well with either BU or North, or, uh, North Dakota. Ooh. Well, that's interesting, folks. I, I like that. I, I like that. Boston University, huh? I suppose I could root for a Boston-based team just one time in my life, right? It's not, it's not like it's going to kill me or anything. Look, it's like a very interesting thing. When you think about Jack Eichel and you think about him being the one-and-done kid, and you're talking about a sport where this really doesn't happen. I mean, we talk about basketball all the time, having the one-and-done kids, and Kentucky being the prime example. Well, here's the hockey version of the same thing. A one-and-done kid that has a chance to win a Hobie Baker at a national championship is going to probably be the number two pick in the draft when June arrives and the NHL draft takes place. It's a very interesting and different scenario for college hockey. It'll be curious to see, based on the success that BU has had with this one and done, whether more programs eventually take this path. Hmm, That's interesting. Uh, like I said, it's a kid who... You know, as you mentioned last week, uh, this is a kid who has the sky's the limit uh, for him, and I think, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what team he goes to. Uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on it, John. We're definitely going to be turning back to you next week to figure out well, who, uh, you know, because we'll have one more week to disguise and discuss this. So we'll be Absolutely. able to circle back into it a little bit deeper. Um, but we're starting to run out of time. I want to thank both John and Montel 
And of course, you know, having Alex on this evening, uh, taking time. Did Marcel fall off the hammock again? I have no clue. I have no clue. Hey, hey, he might just be relaxing, man. Like you said, it's summertime. (laughs) No, I did not fall off the hammock, guys. I'm here taking in this hockey knowledge as usual, guys. No worries here. Um, Are you still outside or are you inside now? Um, I'm heading inside now. You know, the, the, there are mosquitoes out this early, dude. I'm almost, you know, kind of getting some bites going on here. Yeah. So, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, I got to get the spray out next time I go out, you know, just, just trolling outside <laughs> my backyard, wow. man. Wow. Yeah, it's it, it's spring, man. <laughs> wow. But, uh, yeah, they, they called me unprepared today. But, you know, next week I, I'll be prepared. I promise. Hey. What, hey, with the bug spray or, or with the hammock? Well, I, I told you the hammock is more of a pipe dream. I mean, having one tree, I guess I can hook the other okay. end so, into the so garage. So it's going to be the bug spray. You need to yeah, go yeah, to so, a store and buy the yeah. bug spray. Yeah, yeah, I got to get the bug spray out. I, I need a better lawn chair, to be honest. So, so there's there's some things in the works, okay? And and, and I think next week's show will be one of the more comfortable shows I, I think I've had on this network. <laughs> no, I hope it rains next week on them, so we have to be inside. <laughs> yeah, I hope so, too. Again, I want to thank you guys uh, for tuning in. It's been a blast. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, but before we go, Montel, uh, I do know that something is brewing in terms of our draft central coverage. You uh, care to shed uh, any quick light on that before we end the show? Absolutely, Josh. And thanks for uh, you know uh, you know uh, giving this uh, show a little sugar, as you like to say. But uh, as you, as you know, uh, you know as as draft analysts here, we've uh, kind of had a brainchild since we've uh, formed Draft Central uh, back in January that eventually, heading into draft day, we would do a live mock draft, and that's is exactly what we put together. Uh, on April 16th, I believe, starting at, uh, what, 7.30 Central, 8.30 Eastern, uh, we will be doing a live uh, first-round mock draft. Uh, this will feature NGSE's uh, uh, NFL columnists, uh, some people who write for certain divisions, certain teams, will cover their respective teams. Uh, me and you, Josh, will chip in a couple teams here, which we'll split up, I'm sure, <laughs> to be t- determined. But uh, it's going to be a great experience. Uh, basically, everyone's going to go in. It's going to be a two-hour event. People are going to give their selections. Uh, me and Josh will break them down, and, and we'll go on to more selections. And and our buddy John Doucette will be joining the party, too. Isn't that right, John? Yes, yes. I've, I've been told by our boss that uh, my uh, my presence was a requirement, so I, I didn't realize that uh, my knowledge was uh, uh, that greatly uh, appreciated or needed, but apparently I've been, uh, again, wrong. Hey, like I said. <laughs> There's a reason why we call it the IQ. There's a reason why we call you the IQ, my man. Uh, of course, uh, that's going to wrap it up here for us on the weekly show. Again, uh, thank you guys for taking time out of your evenings to join me and uh, spread the, the knowledge and, and even have some fun on this April Fool's Day. I hope everybody has a good rest of their week. Again, tune in same time next week, folks. Other than that, you guys have yourself a good rest of your evening and a good night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.